Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound Off. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to construct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Rick Davis, and coming up on the show today, we talk to Dr. Jonathan Javits, CEO of Norex, on the coronavirus vaccine news. I'm Rick Davis, along with my fellow Bloomberg political contributor, Jeannie Sean Zeno. And joining us today on the panel is Dr. Jonathan Javits, the CEO of Norex and adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Uh, Johns Hopkins has been one of the uh, organizations in the forefront on the battle of coronavirus. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Javits, for uh, joining us today. And we've got news that uh, today was a big day in the coronavirus battle, uh, but a little step backwards. Uh, uh, the U.S. has put on pause the J&J vaccine. Can you give us a sense as to what caused this action and, and what do you think the outcome of this pause is going to be? Well, certainly I don't have any knowledge of the inside regulatory conversation between J&J and the FDA. Uh, and clearly, you know, J&J is a company that has always had a total commitment to quality for over 100 years. So to pause and understand why certain uh, unexpected events have occurred is, is natural. Sometimes it's prudent. Uh, at the same time, you're talking about very rare events, events that are far more rare of having unvaccinated people die of COVID. Well, doctor, uh, we've got some uh, sound on this from Dr. Fauci today, uh, where he talks a little bit about this issue of how rare it is. And uh, and, and, and at the daily briefing at the White House today, um, uh, he uh, tried to address the J&J vaccine. Uh, and maybe uh, let's have some sound on that. We want to get this worked out as quickly as we possibly can. And that's why you see the word pause. In other words, you want to hold off for a bit and very well may go back to that, maybe with some conditions or maybe not. But we want to leave that up to the FDA and the CDC to investigate this carefully. So I don't think it was pulling the trigger too quickly. So, Doctor, if I could continue on this, um, you know, the, the Biden administration has had sort of a, uh, uh, a tricky relationship with the J&J vaccine. First, we had the uh, emergent biosolutions problem in Baltimore with the manufacturing of the doses. 
uh, J&J has taken over that facility, and we are on track to get all these deliveries of J&J doses. And, and I guess my question is, um, does this uh, lead to uh, maybe a lack of confidence? The point you made just a minute ago about how it's far safer than putting yourself at risk with the uh, – with the COVID itself is I think very important, but uh, where do we go from here in sort of keeping the public focused on the battle and getting vaccinated? Well, getting vaccinated is critical. The challenge is no matter what we do, people are going to keep getting COVID and we need therapeutics that will help rescue those people who do get COVID despite the best attempts at vaccination. Jeannie, let me bring you into this because, you know, we've seen um, a lot of momentum in the first 100 days of the Biden administration on the massive amount of vaccines that the government's ordered, 600 million. Uh, it seems to me that uh, this should fall into sort of an asterisk. In other words, the amount of J&J vaccine that was going to be used in all the distributions of these uh, vaccines was a small amount compared to the overall 600 million uh, what are you hearing on sort of where we go from here? And is this going to interrupt uh, the administration's plan to get millions of people vaccinated uh, each day? Well, you and Dr. Javitt were just discussing what I have been hearing all day, which is this question um, whether this is an overabundance of caution or this is an appropriate amount of caution, if you will, for the reason you, Rick, just mentioned, which is things like, is this going to impact vaccine hesitancy? Are we going to, is the public or at least portions of the public going to lose more faith in the vaccine as a result of this. So, Dr. Javit, I wanted to ask you that. How how would you recommend as a public health expert these agencies making these kinds of decisions? Obviously, a very tough decision, but we're talking less than one in a million if it's six cases and they're, you know, that we're hearing about. Do you think this is um, how would you make, recommend making this kind of decision in in terms of what the other risks are like hesitancy well clearly hesitancy is going to kill more americans than any one in a million risk of any vaccine at the same time if we're seeing higher safety and i don't know that we are because i'm certainly not inside the data but if we're seeing higher safety with the mrna based vaccines that those from pfizer and moderna than are so far being seen with the viral-based vaccines, uh, such as AstraZeneca and J&J, &J, uh, then that might motivate public health officials to focus on the mRNA platform while we better understand what's going on with the viral-based vaccines. Dr. Javits, that's a, a really good point. And President Biden uh, addressed that today uh, when he talked about uh, the amount of coronavirus vaccine that have been acquired other than the Johnson and Johnson and others. And, and we've got some sound on that. I made sure we have 600 million doses of the MR, not of either Johnson and Johnson and or AstraZeneca. There's enough vaccine that is basically 100 percent unquestionable for every single solitary American. So, Dr. Javits, maybe just to uh, uh, go back into that a little bit, uh, what will public health officials do now in various states who have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine teed up? Will they just uh, uh, set that aside and use whatever uh, resources they have on the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines? And, and ultimately, um, uh, is there a 
set process to put back into uh, the distribution, the Johnson & Johnson, uh, uh, according to the CDC? Well, it really comes from FDA, and FDA has the ability to put both vaccines and therapeutics on pause and take them off pause. I think the important thing for the public to understand is the reason to keep pursuing the viral-based vaccines is at the end of the day, they may have broader coverage and they may be more uh, potent against some of the variants than the original mRNA vaccines that are very narrowly focused to the strains of the virus that were available at the time those vaccines were made. So it's important to keep pursuing all fronts, just as it's important to keep pursuing potent therapeutics for people who get COVID despite the best attempts we can make at vaccination. Doctor, you you brought up the variants, and it's an interesting place to go. Um, uh, we've heard a lot of press about the UK, the Brazil, the South Africa variant, and 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 even in New York City, the reported cases are evidently seventy five percent of them come now from the variants. Um, is there a concern in the medical community that the variants could lead to, uh, 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 I, I guess? Um, a reinfection uh, at the uh, at the uh, for people who have already had coronavirus. Uh, there's grave concern about that. You've already seen some reinfections, and uh, that's why many people are still advising masks, are still advising social distancing, even in vaccinated people, because we don't know how far these variants will go in terms of being able to circumvent the vaccines especially those mRNA vaccines that were only effective against the spike protein that was available when the vaccines were developed. Could we see a process, doctor, that would uh, indicate a need for like a booster vaccine at some point if the variants get to the point where they're affecting the, the public at large? I think most of the public health world and the vaccine development world is expecting exactly that process to happen just as each year the vaccine that's developed against the seasonal flu is different from the previous year based on what we see with the evolution of the flu virus. These viruses will continue to evolve, and unless our defenses evolve with them, our defenses will be circumvented. Jeannie, uh, we've seen a lot of uh, news today from Michigan, uh, where Governor Whitmer has uh, put more restrictions in workplaces uh, because of the rising numbers of um, cases in her state. Uh, how much of a political issue does this become for the Biden administration uh, where one of their key states, Michigan, is under duress? The epicenter of this latest surge, as you mentioned, she requested additional vaccines. They, she was pushed back from the White House. My understanding is she got 160,000 doses of the J&J for college and university students in particular, these transient populations, that it's hard to get two doses in. But now she's not going to be able to use that. So I think this does raise real uh, concerns for the White House politically, they've wanted to appear like they're um, they're being fair in terms of how they're distributing these. But it is a real challenge for the White House because this surge is very serious in Michigan. Doctor, do you think uh, these kinds of tactics that uh, Governor Whitmore is using in Michigan can help slow the virus to the point where we can catch up with the vaccination process? There is no question that that social distancing, that masking, 
that you know closing close contact events, whether it's restaurants, bars, or or parties, uh, slows tr- viral transmission. It's been effectively implemented in many localities. Uh, and at the same time, it's it's critical to get the vaccination program underway. You know, we shouldn't forget that about 10 years ago, Princeton University took the risk of using an experimental. Dr. Javits, I'm afraid we have to we have to move on. Thank you so much for being with us today and, and giving us this informative response. Uh, and uh, coming up, we're going to hear from John Sedadilis, uh to talk a little bit about Afghanistan. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks, Charlie. I'm Rick Davis, along with my fellow Bloomberg politics contributor, Jeannie Sean Zeno. And joining us in this segment is uh, John Sidalides, uh, political geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Part Advisors and a diplomatic consultant to the Department of State. John, we've had some uh, big news out of the Biden administration today on Afghanistan. Uh, the, mm-hmm. uh, the White House hasn't formally announced, I don't think, but is uh, withdrawal of military forces by uh, September 11th, uh, 2021, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, is, seems to be in the making. Uh, what's your sense of this policy decision and, and what is the foreign policy community today saying about this? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the program, Rick. It's a pleasure to be with you and your Bloomberg team. Uh, This is, uh, I think, unfortunately, a very unclear policy. And I won't put the burden just on President Biden. I think it does go back to President Trump to a certain degree. And that's because I think if you ask the average American why the U.S. military is still in a position to engage in combat with the Taliban 20 years after the September 11th attacks, 95% of Americans won't have a good answer. And that's because no administration has given the American people a good answer. We're doing it simply because withdrawal is is seen as a, a default unwelcome and unacceptable position. But uh, it's very challenging for any administration to be able to demonstrate both to our nemeses in Beijing and in Moscow uh, that the United States will stand by its commitment to achieve a durable peace uh, when it commits to do so as it has in Afghanistan. And also to demonstrate to our allies and partners that even under difficult circumstances, we will be steadfast in our mission. And so that credibility is key in the international foreign policy landscape. But it doesn't make for good domestic politics, especially when the Biden administration, I think, is so singularly focused on economic issues. Um, It'll be interesting to see how they explain the basis for continuing the presence in Afghanistan beyond the original May deadline. Yeah, John, I mean, it's pretty obvious that the Biden administration has prioritized COVID and the economic uh, recovery Mm -hmm. due to that. And uh, we heard from uh, the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki today commenting about this apparent 
uh, plan to withdraw troops. And, and their focus seems to be uh, very uh, much on um, ensuring uh, safety for Afghan women and minorities that are at risk. We have sound on that. The president has been consistent in his view that uh, there, the, the, there is no uh, viable end to the war, uh, military viable end to the war in Afghanistan. Uh, he's had that view for some time now. And he has to make decisions through the prism of what's in the interest of the national security of the United States. Jeannie, I want to bring you in on this because, um, as John mentioned, there's been a uh, quite a bit of a political football uh, with Afghanistan uh, since the uh, war began 20 years ago. And um, we've heard a lot of negativity on Capitol Hill that seems to be unifying uh, the bipartisanship around uh, negativity around this policy. Uh, Mitch McConnell has been critical about it. Uh, Senator Menendez and Reid, two Democratic senators in leadership positions on foreign policy. National security expressed concern. Uh, who's he trying to make happy with this decision? It, I think it's going to be very hard to make anybody happy. Um, you know, you do see um, a sort of strange bedfellows. The Republicans have been split on this issue. Um, we saw Jim Inhofe come out today um, and say, you know, of course, nobody wants a forever war. Um, but he also says he's consistently said that any withdrawal must be conditions based. And with this decision, of course, the Biden administration has decided that condition based withdrawal is something that they are just not going to accept anymore because it gets us in these forever wars. And then you look, he was also criticized by Senator Gene Shaheen, a moderate Democrat from New Hampshire on this. So I think it's created some strange bedfellows. And John, I just wanted to ask you, on this conditions-based withdrawal um, approach that has been in practice for 20 years, they've now decided to move away from that. What are the dangers of moving away from, a? you know, now there's no conditions, we will withdraw regardless. What are the dangers of that? Well, it all depends on what Taliban leaders are thinking, Jeannie. And, you know, at first they threatened to re-engage in combat operations against American troops if we stay beyond the original May 1 deadline, uh, they may decide to wait it out a few more months because now that we've announced another deadline, September 11th, they may say, well, let's just enjoy the next three months of quietude and, uh, you know, military practice and drills over the summer. And if there are still Americans here, we'll go after them. But when the Americans withdraw, we'll just take over the Afghan government. We'll take on the Afghan military. And we will ascertain that there really is no American credibility in, in staying for the fight. And I think that's going to be the real danger here. Uh, I still need someone to explain to the American people why Afghan women's rights and minority rights are in the U.S. national interest when we have our own domestic issues to contend with, first of all. And secondly, uh, the Taliban knows that uh, the Americans are leaving. They're telling all of the Afghan citizens, you can rely on your American friends and supporters and defenders until September. And after that, we take over the country. So they're essentially setting the terms for the future of Afghan governance. And it's very, very few people that believe that the Afghan military is in a unified and cohesive enough structure to be able to defend the central government against the Taliban and against a number of other terror groups and tribal, John, I, mil tribal militias in the country. I want to pick up where you left off there. Uh, I think that's an interesting query, especially uh, what are the U.S. Uh, foreign relations interests uh, in, in, in Afghanistan going forward? Um, I'm Rick Davis, and this is Bloomberg. 
Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1. To New York, Bloomberg 1130. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Rick Davis. Coming up, we talk to our panel a little bit more about the Biden plan for Afghanistan. I'm Rick Davis, along with my fellow Bloomberg contributor, Jeannie Shanzano. And uh, we continue to have a conversation with John Sidalides, uh, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors. John has been just talking about some of the policy uh, prescriptions of the Afghan policy in the Biden administration. And we were talking a little bit earlier about um, the, the priority that seems to be coming out of the Biden policy, which is to somehow protect women and minorities uh, after our withdrawal. Uh, John, uh, as I understand it, uh, Biden has even pledged to include women uh, in the peace talks that are scheduled for later this month in Istanbul uh, between the warring parties in Afghanistan. Uh, you were mentioning uh, that you weren't sure how this strategy somehow is uh, compelling national interest for the U.S. Can you elaborate that a little bit more? Uh, to me, of course, Rick, it seems rather self-evident that uh, defending women's rights and minority rights in countries that are dominated by historic tribal politics really is going to take us into a, a dark hole. Uh, and we've already suffered tremendous losses of treasure and of American lives in 20 years in Afghanistan. And I will say the original reason for going into Afghanistan, I think, was very sound, right? And that was to destroy the Taliban government that harbored al-Qaeda when they planned their attacks against the United States and murdered 3,000 Americans, innocent Americans. But 20 years later, it's very difficult to justify a so-called threat from the Taliban against the United States. There's really no threat from anywhere in Afghanistan against any major interest of the United States directly or indirectly. Um, I think if one wants to argue that we want to minimize, say, Iranian influence in Afghanistan, which is already extended all the way to the west to Syria and the Mediterranean Sea, that's maybe a cogent argument. Uh, one, of course, uh, another one is to prevent the establishment of any other type of terror organizations in Afghanistan. But we can always attack those from offshore platforms, either nearby bases in South Asia or from facilities in uh, the Indian Ocean or our bomber fleet uh, in the area. So we can always take out any terror organization threats to the United States. I will state, Rick, that I think there are two compelling reasons that nobody will talk about in public. And one of them is uh, the fact that Afghanistan may possess hundreds of billions, if not a trillion dollars worth of rare earth minerals that we're going to need for an increasingly technology-based, silicone-based global economy, including electric uh, vehicles, batteries, microprocessors, electronic devices. All of those require rare earths. And the Chinese are making a very, very strong bid to be able to mine those, extract those, and dominate the global rare earths industry. The second one affects American society. And that is that there are plants now in Afghanistan that are growing very, very rapidly and very easily that uh, drug trafficking organizations can use to turn into methamphetamine and to poison American society and Western societies in other parts of the world. And I think those are going to be the two great threats that emanate from Afghanistan, as opposed to women's rights and minority rights in a country that doesn't care about either of those and will revert back to tribal politics once the Americans are out in September. 
Well, you know, Jeannie, maybe we can pick up on this because uh, on this program, uh, we've had uh, many conversations about the need to uh, sharpen up our supply chain uh, in the U.S. and make it less dependent upon China. But the point that John just brings up about the presence of rare earths in China, those things that, uh, you know, help make uh, uh, cell phone batteries and uh, permanent batteries for uh, wind turbines uh, and, uh, and weapons of war, uh, it seems to me that would be a compelling national interest to ensure that that we would have access to those kinds of resources and, and not necessarily, after all the blood and treasure we've spent, uh, turn them over to China. That's right. And, and I, I'm really glad that John just raised that um, because, you know, if we think about it, um, Afghanistan's neighbor, Pakistan, China has invested heavily in their infrastructure there, um, mm-hmm. in the billions of dollars. Um, and there is, you know, it's hard to imagine that the same investment doesn't move its way a little bit north. So if the United States does leave, which it looks like we will, at least militarily, you do leave that that open for, for China to move into. But one question I had, um, John, just back to this issue of national interest, and I think mm-hmm. the ones you raised are, are very real. Um, you hear a lot from people like Lynn Cheney and others about the resurgence of the Taliban and potentially Al Qaeda or the you know Taliban continuing, not resurgence, and reemerging sure. um, Al Qaeda in the region. And that has long, obviously since 2001, been seen as a threat to the United States. Is that no longer a threat in your mind? It's a great question that you raised, Jeannie, and I think uh, most analysts will tell you that we don't really see a credible threat to the United States out of Afghanistan anytime in the near future as we faced in the late 90s and in 2001. And if one were to arise, we don't need American troops living in Afghanistan and being exposed and vulnerable to terror attacks from Taliban and other organizations. As I mentioned earlier, we can strike them from bases that we have in nearby friendly countries, we have offshore platforms in Diego Garcia, uh, several uh, about a thousand miles south of India, near Afghanistan, and other facilities that we can use. If we have to defend the United States, if we have to defend our interests and our partners, there are other ways of doing it than exposing hundreds, if not thousands, of American soldiers to nonstop danger. And the Taliban is determined to eliminate the American presence one way or the other. I hope they're not attacking our troops again because we haven't really suffered many casualties in the last year, year and a half. But that could be a resurgence of violence between May and September. But I just don't see the compelling reason to prolong the uh, the presence of American forces in Afghanistan. when We do have viable alternatives. John, I th- I'm, I'm so glad you're giving us a lot of time today because these are uh, fascinating issues. And and I, mm-hmm. and I think uh, after this break coming up, I want to continue the conversation as it relates to uh, China. Uh, you know, we've seen so much of this administration's first hundred days focus on developing a China policy, trade, the economy, human rights. Let's talk about where Afghanistan fits in that China policy. This is Bloomberg. I'm Rick Davis. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Rick Davis, along with my fellow Bloomberg politics contributor, Jeannie Sean Zeno. And also uh, joining us has been John Sidalides. He's the geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and a diplomatic consultant to the Department of State. We've been talking about Afghanistan and the Biden administration's announcement uh, that it will be withdrawing forces uh, by 9-11-21, the 20th anniversary of the uh, attack on the Twin Towers. Uh, But we've been sort of migrating that discussion, John, over to China. Uh, You've mentioned Mm -hmm. uh, China has interests, you know, in the rare earths in Afghanistan and uh, uh, potentially problems associated with the drug trade there. Uh, But we know China has invested tens of billions of dollars also in the neighboring country in Pakistan uh, through their Belt and Road Initiative. So they're in the neighborhood uh, looking at Afghanistan as an opportunity but a lot, in the, a lot of people in the Biden administration seem to think that they've got to untie their hands in Afghanistan in order to pivot to the near-peer competition with China. Uh, do you think we have to isolate these, these um, uh, regional uh, issues like that? Or, or isn't part of our approach to China making common cause in places like Afghanistan and Pakistan? If it were doable, Rick, perhaps. But this really goes back to the Obama administration's famous pivot to the Pacific region, which was redubbed the Indo-Pacific region under the Trump administration. But if you recall, as President Obama sought to unwind the United States, not only from Afghanistan, but also from Iraq, very famously, when we pulled out our troops there, and that led to the creation of Islamic State in Syria and northern Iraq, there was this concern that you would have, as Jeannie hinted before, a possible refilling of Afghan territory with terror organizations. And China, in many ways, has benefited from U.S. policy in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. If you think about the fact that the U.S. military has been so heavily engaged in both Afghanistan and Iraq over the last two decades, and that's really given China the operational space to build its strength to become not only a formidable military power, but especially a global economic colossus, where now Chairman Xi Jinping directly challenges U.S. global leadership on a whole host of fronts. But there is also a very interesting security component here, Rick. Um, If you look at the map of Asia, you'll see that Western China, specifically the Xinjiang region, where the Biden administration agrees with the Trump administration that the Chinese government is committing genocide, against cultural genocide against millions of its Muslim minority members of the Uyghur population in Western China. That area borders Pakistan, Tajikistan, and a tiny sliver of Afghanistan. And so China has very much benefited from American counterterrorism military operations in Afghanistan that helped to constrain any type of anti-Beijing radical Islamic fundamentalism in Western China. And I think one concern that China may have now with the U.S. withdrawal, if it is complete in September, is the return of potential instability and the rise of anti-Chinese radical Islamism coming out of Afghanistan, possibly out of Pakistan, into Tajikistan, and most of all, into Xinjiang. 
So I think China benefiting for the last 20 years is looking somewhat concerned about the potential for instability, even as it sees investment and economic opportunity. Jeannie, um, we've talked quite a bit on this program about the uh, the plight of the Uyghurs in the Xinjiang region and, and its impact on the uh, human rights policies uh, in the Biden administration. And we've had a lot of talk about the upcoming Olympics in China and whether or not those mm-hmm. should be put at risk uh, because of the uh, human rights violations, not just in the Xinjiang region, but also in Hong Kong and their very muscular approach that they've been taking toward Taiwan lately. Uh, what's your sense of how that debate's going to play out over the next few months? You're right. And we've talked to several people of, you know, who have had various opinions on whether the United States and and other Western allies should, you know, uh, not be active in the Olympics. I I am somebody who thinks and and I know we heard from the Biden administration not that long ago on this. I am somebody who thinks it would be the height of folly for us to to pull out of the Olympics based on that. Um, We tried that with Carter. It didn't go very well. I am not of the opinion we should do that again. And and I want to circle back to this issue that you and John were just talking about, about the Uyghurs, because, John, one of the things that you just reminded me of is mm-hmm. there is this terrorist, um, Islamic terrorist um, radical uh, movement among the Uyghurs, the ETIM, the East Turkestan Islamic movement that has been a real problem for China in that region. And it was... Um, one thing I've heard from from friends is that the Chinese were suspicious last year when the United States removed the ETIM from ETIM, excuse me, from the terrorism watch list, um, and they fear, I guess, is the the result of that is that the U.S. might be using that group to destabilize um, the area and China as a whole, and that might be a reason we heard things like CNN report in late December that China was uh, willing to pay non-state actors to attack American forces in Afghanistan. So what is your thought on some of these theories that are out there about the ETIM and also China's willingness to pay actors to get American forces out of Afghanistan? Is there any truth to any of this? Um, I can't tell you right now that I have any verifiable information as to whether that that latter point that you raise is accurate. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, This is what our adversaries do to us. And, you know, geopolitics is a very nasty game sometimes. But uh, I will say there is some historical background here going back to the first term of the President George W. Bush administration. And in the context of the September 11th announced uh, pullout of American forces from Afghanistan, when President Bush was looking to build as widespread and as coherent a global counterterrorism alliance, one of the points that he raised with the Chinese was the concern that the U.S. had at that time for these radical Islamist groups, especially some of the Uyghur, the militant Uyghur groups that were engaged in terror operations against official Chinese targets in Western China. And so the Bush administration helped persuade China to come on board the global counterterrorism alliance that the U.S. had built, at least tactically, in exchange for U.S. support for Chinese actions to suppress Uyghur militant activities. Now, that was never going to be a sort of a, an open invitation to culturally destroy an entire people, which the Chinese government has been doing for at least the last five to eight years against the Uyghurs. But uh, we cannot say that there are clean hands here, Jeannie, and you're absolutely right. There are actual Uyghur terror operations that go back probably several decades. 
but the Chinese have exploited that terror fear in order to destroy an entire people. And the Olympics, I think, is going to be a very interesting issue. I think we're going to be debating this for many months to come. I don't know what the outcome will be, but the Beijing Olympics are going to be a major issue for American and international debate for, for months to come. John, if I can follow up, what do you think the uh, mm-hmm. policy that the uh, U.S. should uh, hold on the uh, Beijing Olympics? Are we, are we in or are we out? One of the worst things about an Olympics boycott is you dash the dreams and hopes and lives of thousands, if not tens of thousands, of American athletes and their families and those of our allied countries, uh, really who have no responsibility and, and, you know, no, no dog in this fight, so to speak. I think there are going to be a number of interesting, creative ways to engage in punitive actions against Beijing for cultural genocide against the Uyghurs, for its uh, efforts to, to swallow up whole Taiwan in the next several years and a whole host of other issues that you raised, including Hong Kong, that may include uh, corporate and official boycotts of China. Now, the, co- the corporate, of course, you can't enforce in a free market economy like the United States. But I think you will see a near zero participation on an official level by the Biden administration and perhaps state and local governments and to look to see what kind of strong signals can be sent to censure China and to make it very clear the world isn't simply sitting by while it commits genocide. But the problem is China is so powerful and so secretive in its operations. If we think about it realistically, there's not much the world can do if the Chinese Communist Party is determined to destroy an entire subculture. It's really not much we can do. But we can send very strong diplomatic signals, and I think that will be the creative debate in the next nine months. Do you think, John, that uh, the use, a more aggressive use, like in the Trump administration of sanctions, Trump used them in order to strengthen his hand around trade disputes, but here in human rights and other policy decisions that the Biden administration has to exert, uh, should they be more aggressive uh, with sanctions as it relates to things like uh, these human rights violations? Uh, credibly, I don't think that's going to be the hand that the Biden administration will want to play. I think they'll be looking to reserve not only sanctions, but perhaps arms sales, uh, possibly other types of tariffs and the like, and really to start to target the individuals around Xi Jinping to put the pressure on Xi to relax many of China's aggressive policies. But I think we're going to be looking at the major strategic issues, Rick, like Taiwan, Japan and China's attack on Japanese Senkaku Islands, on Hong Kong, on the border skirmishes with India, and of course its efforts to swallow up the international waters of the South China Sea and convert that into a Chinese lake in contravention of international law and freedom of navigation worldwide. So those are going to be the strategic issues which we'll be looking to engage in the most determined opposition to China as opposed to human rights, which is really not much the world can do. Because John? If I can interrupt you, thank you so much for your participation in today's panel. You've made it great. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.